Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about tales of animal survival in some pretty extreme locations. Now, radiation exclusion zones around Fukushima and Chernobyl seem like very dangerous places to be, but life manages to find some interesting ways of surviving. Plus, we find out a little bit about the 11th edition of the March Mammal Manners Tournament and how you can be involved and what will lay in store this year. An epic battle of wits, survival and endurance is what awaits fans of March Mammal Madness, the legendary 11-year-old game now that takes place on Twitter, on YouTube and other social media with the aim of trying to educate people from high school or primary school students across the world through to active working scientists and interested parties like myself playing along at home all the way across the world. It's a knockout tournament in the vein of March Madness, the basketball college tournament, but instead of basketball teams, it's of course animals. Now, these animals are competing in a bunch of different exciting divisions. This year we have engineering creatures, creatures that construct or make tools or do some kind of contraption process to either hunt or take care of their young. We also have dad bots, male creatures that do a lot of child rearing, and also itty bitty comeback city, small creatures previously eliminated, and of course striped creatures. These creatures in categories compete against each other in a knockout tournament to pick the best creature, the champion. And whilst there's a lot of random number generation involved, the actual outcomes also are based as much as they can be on what the scientific papers say about interactions between different species. We know a lot and we can learn a lot about how species may interact with each other in all kinds of settings. And one of the great things about Marshmallow Madness is the ability for people to learn about how creatures may interact outside of their more familiar settings that we normally encounter with them in. And it's a great way to learn not just about mammals, because there are of course bugs and fish and birds as well, thanks to some of the coordinators like Chris Anderson and Josh Drew contributing along with obviously Professor Katie Hind and others at Arizona State University who are leading this overall program. They bring in expertise from different domains. They share their knowledge in a fun and exciting way, whether that be through some epic rap battles, costumed reenactments, or even interesting tales and stories spun in the forms of uh, legendary poetry. There's all kinds of exciting ways to transmit information about what creatures are and how they exist. And even for someone who isn't a huge fan of biology when he was in school, I find it a great way to learn about areas of science that you otherwise might not have understood before. For example, the way in which different creatures process or rear their young, what an intertidal zone means and how they can lay havoc to your bracket, or even some strange and unusual marsupials from all over the world. These kind of amazing facts are things that you learn along the way. Plus, you can have a lot of fun trash talking. Now, when this episode airs, you will have maybe just missed the wildcard battle, but there's still time to get in on the main action which will commence in a couple of days on the 15th of March. And you can follow along, of course, by joining in on Twitter at the hashtag 2023MMMM, or you can look at many of the other ways of getting that information, Facebook, YouTube, where lots of other summaries and recaps are posted by groups of fans and keen participants as well. This is a great learning activity which has actually published papers by Katie Hint and others in significant journals about the benefits of these 
programs for scientific education and outreach. But if you just want some fun and you're vaguely scientifically curious, well, it's well worth checking out. Now, it's probably a bit late to do research in best picking your bracket, but this week we're going to focus on some tales of survival in the vein of marshmallow madness for animals surviving in some pretty difficult environments. When you think about nuclear power, chances are your mind goes straight to a disaster, whether that be the Fukushima nuclear disaster or perhaps the older but more significant disaster in Chernobyl. Maybe if you're American, you think of Three Mile Island and others. But this is the problem when people think about nuclear anything. You think about the disasters, even in the civilian setting. Now, the thing is, when we think about a nuclear disaster, we think of some kind of apocalypse. Maybe you're imagining Fallout video games, for example. Or if you've watched the amazing miniseries adaption of Chernobyl, you probably have a pretty good picture in your mind about what that exclusion zone around the nuclear reactors in Chernobyl looks like. The thing is, if you go there today, it's a very different story, and it is in fact actually a pretty widespread tourist attraction to go get closer to the exclusion zone around Chernobyl. And this is because, well, the Chernobyl disaster occurred in 1986, and it's been a lot of time since then. Now, not of course, <laughs> anywhere near enough to have all that radiation dissipate. Of course, most of the isotopes that you're talking about have at least around a 30-year lot half-life before the radiation will be halved from where it started out at. But even that halved level is still pretty bad. But it's not empty. It's not a barren wasteland. It's often sometimes very green and actually filled with animals. Now, some researchers have been exploring exactly how creatures have adapted to this environment, to undertaking genetic studies. Because intense radiation pressure, either pressure from heavy metals or toxic chemicals. These are all things that exist not just in big disaster sites, but in acute settings in many different locations. So for researchers understanding the impact that this kind of radiation can have on a creature and its genetics and way it interacts with its environment is really important. So that's what researchers from North Carolina State University, Columbia University, Mailman School of Public Health and University of South Carolina have been diving into. And lead author on this paper, Megan Dillon, and others have just published in the journal Canine Medicine and Genetics. And what these researchers were trying to understand is how creatures inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone have been changing over time. Now, when the Chernobyl disaster happened, there was around 300,000 people who lived nearby in this no man's land exclusion area of 30 kilometers as a radius from the main reactor complex. And people were pushed out of that very rapidly and they have stayed out. Now, there was a massive steam explosion which dumped all kinds of ionizing radiation into the air, water, and soil. That was most of the disaster, but it's not the only thing that was released. You have to remember, this was a huge industrial site that had a pretty nasty event occur, and a lot of stuff spread through the area as well. All kinds of chemicals, toxic metals, and pesticides. All of these have been left behind and created a bit of a chemical disaster zone as well as the radiation one. And yes, you can have cleanup efforts to try and clear all this out from abandoned and decaying structures, including the abandoned basically city of Pripyat and Duga One military base, which were all kind of inside that exclusion area, but otherwise abandoned. So you have the radiation, 
you have heavy metals, you have toxic chemicals, you have all kinds of nasty things left in the environment, just unattended for a long period of time. And what happens to the environment around them in their exposure to all these strange chemicals and radiation? Well, if you talk to researchers like Norman Klein, assistant professor at Health Sciences at Columbia at Melbourne School of Public Health, who's an author on this paper, he surprised somehow two small populations of dogs managed to survive in that highly toxic environment. And so what the researchers did was try to understand and study these different populations in two different discrete locations, see what relationship they had with each other and actually to use it almost as a control. Both groups of dogs or populations are in the exclusion zone, but are they the same or are they having different responses to the environmental pressures of all that bad stuff around them that they're facing? So does an environmental disaster really have at a genetic level an impact on life in the region? That is what the research is really trying to get out. And by having two discrete populations, you can get a pretty interesting study into this. So previous studies have been trying to investigate the structure of these populations with some genetic analysis to see if they're distinct. And yes, they went back and confirmed that again in this study, looking at a lot of different genomes and variants to confirm that they're distinct population groups. And then to see if their genomes had actually diverged from each other in some ways. And to do this, the researchers pick out around 391 outlier reagents in the genome. And these regions differ between the two locations. Researchers like Breen point out that this is like having a signpost or marker on the highway. They identify areas of the genome where we should look more closely at nearby genes, indicators that there's something in this area may be changing. But at the moment, we can't say for sure if there's any genetic alterations, but they have tags and markers now that they can study, especially over time as the populations diverge. The thing is, it's hard sometimes to tell other dogs' DNA is diverging because of genetic drift, because they're isolated populations, or is there some other environmental stressor in place there? And so by building a genetic database now and an index that can be come back to at a later time, it sets the groundwork for future studies into what is happening with these dogs' DNA and how they're adapting to the environment. It's a part of tracking life in an exclusion zone, but it's not the only time that we've done a study like this. We've also looked in detail in previous episodes of this podcast about life inside the Fukushima exclusion zone. In a paper published back in 2021, researchers Kelly Cunningham and others in the journal Environmental International outlined some interesting analysis on different species that were found in the Fukushima exclusion zone. Now, of course, the Fukushima event was nowhere near as disastrous as what was found around Chernobyl. And whilst that's true, the Fukushima disaster occurred in 2011. Now, we're talking here in 2023, and this particular study was focusing on the region of time in 2016 to 18. So that's not a huge amount of time from an elapsed radiation half-life perspective. And so we can see some interesting effects because we can go in and study it in detail. And that's what the researchers did by studying wild boar and rat snakes from a bunch of different radiation exposure sites across the Fukushima region. They were looking at biomarkers of DNA damage and, and stress. And what they found in the Fukushima area is actually no signs of significant adverse health effects. 
Now, this is different to the study we talked about earlier with the dog's genetic drift and DNA changes over a long period of time, living in a sustained air of nasty exposure to radiation or chemicals. This is more probably, let's call it an acute response in a population as opposed to a very long-term adaptive response. So different things in these studies, but still important to talk about. Now, when they looked at the biomarkers of DNA damage and stress, they saw that there weren't significant adverse health effects. And this is pretty fascinating because in Fukushima, a large area of land and, and country was deemed as part of the exclusion zone. And it was mostly also farmland around this region. So the concern has always been, how could we move back safely into this contaminated area? And well, Life didn't wait for the government to reclaim and remediate that soil or region. They went straight back in, and there is a very healthy population of wild boar in Fukushima and other animals as well. They thrive in this environment. Now, mice are one of the typical things used in radiation biology because they're a good model that we understand and can usually study. But pigs, descendants of wild boars, are actually closer to humans than a mice model, but most researchers don't actually use pigs because, well, they're larger and more difficult to deal with in a lab. So actually having some real-world radiation exposure inside from pigs is actually very useful when it comes to studying potential health impacts on humans. And for researchers from Fukushima University, like Hiroki Ishinawa, they're trying to help understand how humans may be impacted by the radiation in the region, mostly also for them because it's what the people in their region and themselves obviously directly, immediately concerned with. So were there any actual signs of stress and damage in the wildlife's DNA? Well, by doing this detailed study of the telomeres of the boars and snakes, they were looking for clues whether or not there was significant stress. For example, if the boar were stressed, you would see their telomeres shortening as part of the response to that. But they didn't see any changes related to radiation dose, and they didn't actually see any changes or shortening in the snakes either. Now, the thing is, a wild boar is a digging species. They dig and root in the soil for food and for, and for foraging. And if they were digging contaminated soil, then surely they would receive a huge dose, additionally of radiation, compared to, say, a bird in the air. But what they found is that even if with some pretty quite significant calculations trying to quantify exactly how much dose and radiation exposure this wildlife would have had, they did see some signs of low levels of particular hormone cortisols, which can be used to indicate stress inside the creatures found inside the exclusion zone. But this may be more to do with the fact that these boar are under less stress because, well, there's no predators around or things that may kill them or otherwise scare them off. For example, humans just like in Chernobyl, there's nobody around. And that gives the animals and plants freedom to operate without fear of our humans, especially with things, creatures that live on human settlement fringes like wild boar. The fact that they don't have to worry about humans actually means that actually the radiation might be causing a stress for them, but there's no human stress. So for them, actually, it's a pretty good deal. So a radiation exclusion zone is often a place where creatures thrive. In the absence of humans, it's not a difficult or easy environment to live in, to be sure, but the creatures there are managing to find a way to survive and thrive without us. 
it's a good reminder of the fact that life is pretty ingenious and can manage to survive in places we wouldn't otherwise think of. Not that I would be wanting to move my pets or myself into a radiation exclusion zone anytime soon. It's not impossible for things to thrive and flourish there, which is exactly what those creatures are doing in their own way. So this is a paper first published, this paper was first published in Environmental International in 2021, lead author Kelly Cunningham and others. We talked about it earlier on this podcast a couple of years ago as well. But it's good to check back in on these kinds of studies, especially when we have new studies in other exclusion zones like Chernobyl to talk about as well. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From dogs, wolves, boars, and other creatures inside the exclusion zones of Fukushima and Chernobyl, we found about the way life manages to survive. Plus, we talked about the amazing animal education tournament March Mammal Mad. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.